loving our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? That is where we've been over these last couple of months, asking that question. I'm sure like many, I'm sure I'm not the only one this week that has followed through the journey of Holy Week. And as we get to what is known as Monday Thursday, and I, I, I'm so awful because I still don't even know what that word means. What is it, Mom, Pauline, what is Monday? Like? So uh, whatever it is, I should have done my research before I get up here. Somebody Google Monday and tell me what it means. But anyway, Monday, Thursday, and I was in this moment, and, and, uh, and we read about it. Uh, we read about it in the Gospels where, where, Jesus, uh, where Jesus takes the towel, and he goes around, and he washes the feet of his disciples. It's a stunning moment. It's a stunning act. And what makes it more stunning to me is that we, we, know, the, we know how it all begins to pan out. We, we see Good Freddy. We see how they all scattered, and they all fled. But the day before, Jesus makes this decision to, to, to wash their feet, and he knows that his disciples will fail him. He knows that one will betray him, and yet he brings them to the table, and he washes their feet, and he serves them a feast. Incredible, incredible grace. And in spite of knowing the failures to come, God moves towards us in love. What a challenge that is for those of us now that, that represent him on earth, that, that are his ambassadors, that are his agents of transformation, his agents of reconciliation. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be more and more like him. And sometimes, that, sometimes there's, there's times we look at that, we look at the stories and we, we see there's, we could do that. I think I could do that. But it gets to John 13 and it's like, oh my goodness. Even those that will betray, those that will walk away, those that will continue to fail and continue to let down, Jesus still moves towards them in love, knowing the failures to come. And as you follow through, as I'm sure many of you have and many of you do, and if you don't, I would encourage you to do so, read through the, 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 the story of Jesus. We see that often he calls people to follow him, and just when we think we get what it means to follow him, we come across verses we come across a chapter like this and Jesus washes the feet of his disciples even though he knew that one would betray him and so I think that there's no there's no better time to bring our there's no better day to bring our who is my neighbor series to a close than coming to this Easter weekend as we've as we reflect as we've pondered over the last couple of days the cross it's Jesus on the cross, loving the world, dying for his enemies that reveal more than anything else who our neighbor is. Because it's on the cross that Jesus reveals the value and the worth that he places on all humanity. And so as we consider that, because we consider that question, who is my neighbor, and we, we look to the cross, we think of those verses that, that we uh, are memorized many many of us since we were children for God so loved the world that he that he gave his son he loves the world and the cross reminds us of the of the of the extravagant nature of his love the cross reminds us of the lengths that he will go to redeem and to restore broken lost people and so as we, begin, as we ask that question, as we ask that question on this Easter weekend, 
it should have a great impact on how we view those around us because it's in this moment that, that Jesus places infinite value on all of humanity. He places indescribable worth on all of humanity. And there's nobody misses out on that. Because there's this little verse. There's this little verse in Luke chapter 6. don't know if you've came across it before. I think I've read Luke 6 many times, but maybe subconsciously I've avoided it. This is what it says in Luke chapter 6. Keep in mind, we're continuing to ask that question, what, what, uh, who is my neighbor? Let the words of Jesus ring in your ears. Let them challenge you. Let them provoke you when he says, love your enemies and do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. As I read that verse this week, there was, there was, there was several buts came to mind. Do good to them. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Bless them. Lend to them without expecting anything back. And I got to the end of that verse. like, but God, what about? But God, what about? God, what about this person? What about these people? It's almost like the question, the answer was there as, as I read on. He is kind and great. He is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. I tell you, there's, I, I almost wish I hadn't read that. <laughs> I almost wish I hadn't seen that in the red letters of Jesus. He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And then do you know what he says? He says, so you guys who have decided to follow me, who have said yes, taking up your cross and following after me, you be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So reading through the words of Jesus and the testimony of Jesus and the lifestyle, the way of Jesus, it's really challenging whenever we, with honesty and integrity, ask this question, who is my neighbor? I don't want to take too long. I don't want to take too long on this, but I've just been struck over the last, um, over the last number of weeks with the desert fathers. The desert fathers were ones who went out into the, went out into the desert to, just to worship. It was it was uh, in the th- in the in the third fourth century, Christianity was made the the religion of the empire. And so for the first three hundred years there was. There was persecution, there was trial, but the church grew. The, the church grew from, they reckon, about 2 million to 200 million in the space of, 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 this, uh, of this 300 years. Incredible growth, incredible expansion. It became the religion of the empire, and it became comfortable, it became easy. And so the, there was these men that couldn't settle for that. There was these men that couldn't settle for, for compromise. They couldn't settle for living comfortably, for living easy. And so they went out into the, into the desert. And the three things that I'm learning from the desert fathers is solitude, silence, and prayer. And there's this question was asked of one of the desert fathers. I can't remember which one, but um, they asked why solitude gives birth to compassion. And I was struck by that question because all along in this series and all along since the start of this year, that has been the deepest cry of my heart personally. Jesus, I want to. I want to be like you in Matthew chapter nine. I want to. I want to look out on the crowds and be moved, be moved deeply with compassion as I look and see people that are lost, 
sheep without a shepherd, hopeless and harassed. I want to I look out on them people and see them as you see them. Give me your eyes to see them, Jesus. And so I was struck by this question that was asked of the desert father. Why does solitude give birth to compassion? And his answer was, his answer was, um, it makes us die to our neighbor. It makes us die to our neighbor. And, and as he unpacked that a little bit, he says, to die to our neighbor means to stop judging them. It means to stop evaluating them and thus become free to become compassionate. Compassion can never coexist with judgment because judgment creates the distance, the distinction which prevents us from really being with the other. To die to our neighbor means to stop judging. And maybe if you're bold enough, you'd have that person in your mind. The person that you feel is really ungrateful, that is really undeserving. Think about these words of the of this father, to die to our neighbor means to stop judging them. It means to stop evaluating them and thus it become it allows us to be free to become to be compassionate. Compassion can never coexist with judgment because judgment creates the distance and the distinction which prevents us from really being with the other. He went on later on to say, Don't let don't have hostile feelings towards anyone and do not let dislike dominate your heart. Do not let dislike dominate your heart. And so what I've realized over the last the last couple of days is that there's nothing is there is no more thing that there's nothing greater that levels us all, that provides a level playing field in the cross. The cross is a real leveler. We so often I am guilty, so often forget how desperate we need his grace, how desperate we need his mercy, how desperate we need his kindness. And so I have as I've thought about this, as I've tried to challenge myself with this, I found myself several times this week, I truly have, found myself several times this week saying, Neil, worry about your own stuff. Worry about your own stuff before, before dismissing your neighbor. And so I believe that there's moments that I, that I feel that that has helped me. It's helped me to, to look upon the poor upon the rich, upon the religious, upon the adulterer, upon the drunkard, those facing injustice, upon the sick, upon those that are bitter, upon those that think differently politically, from those whose sexual orientation is differently, to, be, to begin to look, to begin to look different, different at people. Reminding myself that the cross is a real leveler. And so I'm, I'm praying and hoping that this, this question just will continue to provoke. Gareth took us to how we treat our, our Muslim neighbours. Mark Knox last week took us, uh, took us how we treat those that are, um, who are struggling educationally, who are struggling financially. How we love them, how we... How we uh, we stop that distance widening. We've talked about how we just love ourselves. We've talked about how we love one another. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit would just continue to challenge us and, and continue to make us more like him. I believe there's a few things that take place in John chapter 8 that remind us of what was taking place 
what was being offered to us, to those that will believe, based on the message of the cross. I'm struck as I read through the Gospels and see often that the disciples just didn't fully get it. There's times that Jesus made these comments, made these statements, and the disciples just didn't know what he meant. They didn't know what he was saying. There's times that they were afraid to ask because they didn't want to look stupid, I think. But there's times that just so often they didn't get it. And and it gets to John chapter 8, and this is the verse that struck me at the beginning of the week, and, and I couldn't get away from it. John chapter 8 verse 27 says that they still did not understand what he was telling them about the Father. As Jesus had gathered the crowd around him, he he became aware that they still didn't understand what he was telling them about the Father. See, the most incredible, and it seems really simple, but the most incredible revelation for me over the last number of years has been that Jesus came to reveal the Father. If you want to know what the Father looks like, you want to look at Jesus. And you know, the greatest demonstration of who Jesus is is, is is on the cross. And so for too long, I grew up with this understanding that the Father was really angry with me. He was really angry with me and he wanted to punish me, but thank goodness for Jesus because Jesus deflected his anger away from me. And so I grew up with this understanding of a Father who was angry with me, but Jesus who was the kind and, and gentle one. But this revelation of this revelation of of, uh, of what Jesus says in the Gospels, I've came to reveal the Father. If you've seen the, if you've seen me, you've seen Him. And it's still the Father is His nature and His character was was misrepresented then, and, and oftentimes it still is now. And I and I believe we're going to push into that again next week, as these as as David and Christy come and, and share with us next week. We want to keep we want to keep challenging ourselves with that. The idea that the nature and the very character of the Father has been misrepresented, and oftentimes it still is. Because Jesus, rather than... The, the disciples had an expectation that Jesus would come. When the Messiah would come, he would come and destroy all his enemies. That when the Messiah would come, he would set up a kingdom of power. When the Messiah would come, he would gather people around him that looked just like us, talked just like us, thought just like us. And Jesus came and, and, and just refused to be put into the box that was created for him. He still is like that today. He refuses to be put in the boxes that we want him to fit into. And there's no greater place that we see that than on the cross. Because these guys were completely, they completely missed it. Because Jesus didn't come and destroy his enemies. He came and gave up his life for his enemies. Rather than setting up a kingdom of power, Jesus came and set up a kingdom of sacrifice, one that was looked like surrender. And they didn't understand this. They thought he was one. They often tried to, to make him king by force, but he was always going to be one who was made king through by surrender. And in verse 28 of John chapter 28, if you're there... Um, keeping John 28. If you're not there, if you want to go there, that's where we're going to be for the the next few minutes. And so whenever Jesus says they still don't understand what he was telling them about about his Father, then he says in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. And that's why this weekend is so significant. 
Because Jesus' words himself, it was, it was on the cross that you were going to finally, finally have this picture, finally have this full revelation of who I am. Finally, you're going to know and, and trust that I was who I claimed to be. That's where the cross is so significant. And, that, and Paul goes on to tell us why the resurrection is so significant. Because if the resurrection isn't true, then we are a people to be most pitied. If the resurrection didn't happen, this is a sham. This is a waste of our time. If the resurrection didn't happen, we are, we are a pitiful people. But it did, and, I, and I've loved, I've read through, found myself in, in moments this week of, of, uh, of going back into, the, into, into history, going back to those third, fourth century historians, even further back than that, and finding that there was no question that Jesus came and walked on the earth. Find that even those that never that were never that were never Christians that were hardened against the message of Jesus even confirmed over and over again that this man Jesus he did he rose from the dead. And so we're left with this moment whenever it's 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 proven historically that he came, that he lived among us, that he died the death that he died and rose again. I think we're left with such an important question. What do we do with Jesus? What do we do with this man? And like C.S. Lewis said, he's either either lunatic or he's Lord. There's no in-between. You can't say, you can't get away with saying he's a good prophet or he's a good teacher. Because if what he said wasn't true, then he was he was a lunatic. But if what he said was true, he's Lord. That's why this Easter season we wanna we wanna we wanna confront people, ask them the question, what are you gonna do with Jesus? We're going to do with this man who's who's called Jesus, and so what? A few verses. Let me just let me just read these verses. Verse thirty-one to verse thirty-six. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, "If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." And they answered him, "We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free?" I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I think it's upon this belief to those that believed him and held his teaching. The same thing that happened to these guys, it's for us who will believe, who will hold his teaching. There's, There's some exchange, I think, that takes place. And the first exchange I think that takes place in verse 32 is that you will know the truth. And this is where the shift takes place. That this becomes personal. This becomes something that we, that we now experience. And for so long I, I, I knew about Jesus. I knew about God. I, I knew about the stories in Scripture. I knew about the incredible testimony of the apostles in, in the book of Acts. But there's a shift, there's a something that takes place when we, not, we, not know, we don't just know about him, but we know him. See, this word know, it's this, this Hebrew word yada. And this is a knowledge through intimacy. This is a knowledge through experience. And this is what the cross, his death, his life, his resurrection, it does for us. This is what it invites us into. It invites us to not only knowing the facts, not just knowing the historical facts, not just knowing all the right verses, but actually knowing him. 
And if you were to read on in, in John's gospel, and you would get to John chapter 9, and you'll read of the, of the man that was, that was born blind. And I, I, I've been fascinated by this chapter this week. Because the religious people, as I watch on the reaction of the religious people, they're wanting to box Jesus in. They're wanting to play a box for him to, to, to fit into. They're wanting everybody else to place the same box around him. And so personal experience frustrates the life out of religious people. Religious people do not know what to do when somebody has a personal experience. And this is what Jesus invites us into. I love that he, the question is asked. The religious people ask the man that had been healed. They want, to, they want to know more facts. They want to know more information. And this is what the man says. Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. I don't know all the things that you want. That I don't know all the things about him. I don't know all the prophecies. I don't know all the things that were promised, all the things that were said. But this was what I do know, that I was blind and now I see. And there was this knowledge. There was this knowing him through experience. And it was, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus refuses to be put in the box that we try to place him in. And, and so we are invited into this, this relationship that we can know him through experience. And, I'm, and I'm, that's my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for the church in this nation, on this island, that we would move from being a people that would know about him. I think, we've, I think, we've, I think we are pretty good at the, our Bible verses and our scripture memorization. I think we're not bad at that. But I think there's a time we just move from that place of knowing about him to actually knowing him through experience or something else takes place there's again i think we'll talk more about this next week we we move from being slaves to being sons we talked a wee bit about this on friday night but there is mindsets and that there's habits that we have become enslaved by idols things that we that that grip our mindsets things that grip our hearts things that grip our attention we become enslaved to them they grip us, they bind us, they hold us back. They cause us to retreat, they cause us to, to back away. But on the cross, when we believe and hold to the teaching of Jesus, when we hold to the revelation of him high and lifted up, we recognize that we move from slaveship, slavery to sonship. Incredible thing. It's beautiful that we move from, from temporary to eternal. See, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. And so when we know and hold to his teaching, we move from this place of, of, of looking at things temporary, we move to this place of seeing them through the eyes of eternity. We belong to it. We belong to it forever. And then we move from a place of bondage to a place of freedom. And going back to verse 28, Jesus says, whenever, whenever I'm lifted up, you'll believe, you'll understand that I am he. There's another version that says that you will know that I am the one that I claim to be. And so whenever we hold to the teaching of Jesus, whenever we fully understand and recognize the cross and all that took place on it, we begin to go move to this place of knowing him through experience. We begin to move into this place of sonship or daughtership, if that's a word. We move from this place of temporary to eternal, we move from this place of bondage to freedom. And I think as we follow this, the, the, the gospel of John right on through to its conclusion, just before Jesus makes his way to the cross, he prays this prayer in John 17. And I think if you've been about here long enough, you'll know that this is a, 
this is a chapter that's so precious. I hold this chapter so precious because it's an, it's an invitation. Into, it's an insight into the conversation, into this conversation between father and son. We get from a front row seat into the prayer of Jesus that he prays. The last thing, I think it's the last thing that he wants his disciples to hear before he makes his way to the cross. It's the last thing he wants them to hear before their whole world is turned upside down. And so much of what he says in John 17 is a, a slight summary of what we've seen and what we've talked about in John chapter, in John chapter 8. So on the, when we consider the, the cross and we consider all that was accomplished, I love Colossians 2 verse 13. Again, I maybe shared this on Friday morning, but it's worth repeating again. Because on the cross, the penalty of sin was being dealt with, but the, as Dad prayed that on Friday night, there was not just the penalty of sin that was being destroyed, it was the power of sin that was being destroyed and, and Colossians chapter 2 says that, that the rulers and the authorities were disarmed and so those people in the room that have maybe not that have not yet believed that have not said yet said yes to Jesus or those that are in the room that just haven't yet fully related to the to the words of Jesus in John chapter 8 still maybe feel that it still feels temporary this still doesn't feel like I'm a son. This still feels like I'm in bondage. This still feels like I just know about him. Well, actually, on the cross and in this season, we are, we're, we're told through Paul's letter to the church in, in Colossae that, that every ruler and authority has been disarmed. Every voice that would try to attack your mind everything that would come against you, every distraction that would come your way, that, that the enemy would come to try to distract, he would try to come and steal, he would try to come and destroy. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, they have been disarmed. They have no more power over you, they have no more authority over you because on the cross they were made a public example of. On the cross they were made a public spectacle of because, because they were triumphed over through the cross disarmed he disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public example of them having triumphed over them through the cross if you want to know what the message version says it says that he stripped all the spiritual tyrants Spit, stripped all the spiritual tyrants of their sham authority and marched them naked through the streets exposed them further because those voices that distract those voices that will come and cause you to doubt who you are cause you to query the calling and the ability that is on your life. It's a sham. It's a lie. And I pray that every one of those things, not literally, but those, every one of those thoughts, every one of those mindsets, every one of those distractions would be, would be shown up, stripped, and exposed for the tyrant, the sham that they are. So in John chapter 10, just to, just to keep following through, John 8, John 9, and then John 10, and I finish, I finish with this. 
It's um, verse 4. Let me read from verse 4. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep will follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger's. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And so today, I'm, I'm so grateful that, that, that God still speaks. I'm so grateful that he still longs to communicate to his people. I love when I read on in, in the Gospel of John in, uh, in 15 or 16, when it speaks of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says he will, he will speak. He will speak. And I love that he still communicates, and, and, and we are we want him to be a people that will know his voice. Long that we would be a people that would know his voice. But do you know what's really important, I think, as I read through this, as I read through this chapter this week, I, I find myself finding the importance of also knowing, knowing the stranger's voice. Because oftentimes, we, we, before we realize it, we've been listening to the stranger's voice for too long. Whereas Jesus is trying to say that once you hear the stranger, run away from it. So those things that will cause you to doubt your ability to know him, those things that will cause you to doubt your, 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 your sonship, your daughtership, those things that will cause you to doubt whether you truly are free, whether this is an eternal thing or not, whether those things that would, that would distract, those things that would um, attack your self-worth, those things that would question, those voices that would question your ability, that would question your calling, that would quash your passion, that you would know that the stranger's voice and you would run from it. And as you run from it, you would do what the, the disciples on the Emmaus Road that we talked about this morning, the disciples on the Emmaus Road, that you would make your way immediately back to Jerusalem. They, began, they walked away because, because of the distraction. They walked away because their expectations weren't met. But upon revelation of the risen Lord, they immediately got back and made their way back to Jerusalem. They'd walked away from it. But they made their way back to Jerusalem, to that place where they encountered love, to that place where they first encountered such mercy and grace and promise and so my heart and my prayer is that we would know his voice and if you're struggling to hear his voice that there, there's no better season there's no better season to to remind yourself of how he thinks about you of what he says about you of the lengths that he will go to get your attention to get your heart it's when we look to the cross it's when we look to it's when we look to him risen again and i and he's so worth all of our worship. He's so worth all that we have to offer. He's so worth us. He's so worth it being, being rejected by our neighbors. But they would just keep showing up. Being the hands and feet of Jesus everywhere you go. And he said in John 14, I think it is, that because I live, you also live. That spirit that raised him from the dead now lives in us. Oh man, I want to be, I want to be a follower that taps into that. I think for, for, for many of us, we've, we haven't scratched the surface of, of who we are, of the calling and the ability that he's placed on us. It's my heart again to go back to the disciples in the Emmaus Road that our minds would be open and our hearts would burn within us. That upon revelation, again, fresh revelation of the resurrected Lord, the passion would come alive again. Our minds would be open to what he wants to say. And so, Father, would you bless us?